This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, we'll recap the national title game and the college hoop season with one of its foremost analysts and two-time scoring leader in the conference he played in. But first, Darlene, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berlin, along with my partner. His name is the one and only. He is Otto Strong. Otto, what's going on, my man? Uh, I'm doing fine. My my bracket totally went to hell. <laughs> totally went to hell. <laughs> all right, all right. Before before we talk too much about Gonzaga and uh, Baylor, what were your thoughts on last night's game? Oh man. All right. So I'm I'm still kind of waiting for Gonzaga to show up, and I mean, and <laughs> it just it just, just haven't gotten off the bus yet. It, no, it it just felt like you know you, you ever go to like that 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 high school game where, where the, you know, the varsity team from the, from out of, from the like three towns over comes in. And it's just like, okay, we're about to have a, a good old fashioned beat down. And it like, that wasn't the feeling from the start, but like once, once the game was underway, it's like, Oh shoot, this is not, this, this is going to be different than, than how y'all thought it was going to go. It, it almost felt like, you know, the private school in your, your region that gets really built up because yeah. they can recruit and, you know, they've got this elegant personality and then just like, the, the public school, for, like you mentioned, from like downtown comes in. It's just like, no, this is, this is our gym. This is our ball. And mm-hmm. we're going to ball out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Baylor from the jump looked more aggressive. They looked longer. They looked more locked in. And that's weird to say because I, I had someone text me and they said, well, um, you know, Baylor just looks hungrier than Gonzaga right now. And I said, that's, that's not fair. It's the national championship. Like Mark Fuse never won one. This Gonzaga team is 31 and 0 entering this game. They're just as hungry for this. They just never faced anyone with the athleticism that Baylor has, with the length that they have. And I'm going to give it to Scott Drew because I've been a Scott Drew detractor from a lot for a long time. That was a very well coached team. Look, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, as you know, um, you know, I, I follow TCU. I'm like, I'm a Big 12 guy like you are. Too, you know, and I, I did not pick Baylor. I just felt like, you know, I don't know. I felt like the wheels were going to fall off at some point. But what they, the show they put on Monday night, you know, and heck, you know, even even Saturday night for that matter, yeah. it was just like it was theirs going away, and it, and it kind of made me question, like, okay, what what was I thinking again, you know? <laughs> so. Gonzaga for the longest time was built up as this college basketball giant, right? Like they were the best team in the league. You had Jalen Suggs, you had Timmy, you had Kispert. And I thought only one player from Gonzaga last night looked like they could be on the court at the same time with Baylor. And that was Jalen Suggs. Timmy looked like a liability. Kispert never looked like he really got into the basketball game. And everybody else just looked like they were a tier below Baylor. And that's the first time I felt like that all year watching Gonzaga. No, I mean, like, I definitely feel like that, that, you know, the, the, the Gonzaga Baylor game that got, that got scrapped, you know, because of COVID early and that, that would have, 
I mean, we would have had a totally different game. I mean, who knows if we would have actually had that game? You know, Gonzaga doesn't have the perfect season, and so their you know they may their ranking is maybe affected, and it, uh, just so many so many other things that could that could have gone into it. But look, you you, you know. You play who's in front of you. You 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 know. You play with who you got. You know. You 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 play with the guys you brought to the gym. That's who they brought to the gym. I mean, um, I, I will say this, and and tell me if you if you agree. You feel like Big Twelve got a little little bit of respect back. So think about this, Otto. I want to say they have like. 60% of the coaches within the league that have been to a final four, you know, because Bob Huggins has been to one Porter yep. Moser now with Oklahoma has been to one. Um, Bruce Weber, oddly enough, has been to one with, with, with Illinois. But the, so the amazing thing about this is now in two of the last four NCAA tournaments, you know, you have Chris Beard, who's been to a national championship game. You now have Scott Drew, who's won one. Neither of those you would say are the premier programs within the big 12. Texas certainly is, but when Beard was at Texas Tech, it's not. Baylor was not for the longest time. And so now it's like the bottom of the league has risen with the cream of the crop. It's good one through 10. And it's yeah, well, a really good basketball league. Yeah, well, I mean, Texas has been, and they may be good again, but, but where they're at right now, they got, they got, they got some work to do yeah. <laughs> to get to get that. Uh, before we gloss over it, Saturday night's game, UCLA, Gonzaga, the, the ending. I was watching that on my phone, on my couch, because I was letting the girlfriend have the TV, you know, as, as being a nice guy. Yeah. And I was watching that on my phone, and I was like, oh, man, we're, we're getting double overtime. Then it was just like, within a matter of seconds, I was like, oh, my God, Jalen <laughs> Suggs hit that. Yeah. But, but, like, what, what, what was your thought going through that? Uh, all right, so, so my thought was, I, so we, we have a weird setup. I was actually watching the game, but I had it, uh, I was talking to my wife who was in the house. Don't, don't you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long story. So, so I'm like talking to her, but the game is on and I'm trying to like, so obviously, because we, we're, we're having a similar kind of moment, trying to go back, rewind and watch the entire thing. I, it was crazy. I mean, that, that felt like, like the best game of the tournament and it felt like a you know, real college basketball game in the way that, you know, one school slugging it out to the other, you know, uh, it, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. I, you know, just, I loved everything about that game. Um, you know, UCLA kept kind of kept coming at it. I actually, even though I had picked Gonzaga to win it all, and obviously I wanted Gonzaga to win, you know, for, for my bracket and all that, I, I felt bad for UCLA that <laughs> they couldn't pull it off. And it's like one of those games where you just don't want anyone to lose. Just, just think about that. UCLA played a near perfect basketball game for 45 minutes and still couldn't beat Gonzaga. Yeah. That's what's amazing. <laughs> like, so, so when people sit here and, and, you know, today, tomorrow, into the next few weeks, they're going to demean Gonzaga for the way that national championship game went down. No, man, teams had to play above their heads every single time just to be within 10 points of where Gonzaga was most of the season. Yeah, and that's why the, and, yeah. and UCLA played a perfect basketball game and couldn't beat it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why the tournament is great. You know, you got to bring it every night. You got to go six and zero, or 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 UCLA's case, you know, they had to go seven and zero. Um, but but it, you know, to your point, it was it was yes, Suggs played great, uh, but and the and the shot was amazing. But it was all those other, those other moments leading up to it. I mean, going up to going up for a block and uh I stop me, just stop me yeah. because I'll, I'll keep going. The charge, the block, you know, the made basket, and then Suggs just saying, hey, I got time. I'm going to go. Taking the ball and running. Man, it was great. All right. Do, do, do you want to relive a little bit more of this tournament with uh, one of college basketball's best? Let's do it. 
joining us to talk about Monday night's national title game and that wonderful UCLA-Gonzaga Saturday matchup. Oh, man, that was crazy. And all other topics on College Hoops is ESPN analyst and Sirius XM ACC radio host Chris Spatola. Chris is a former two-time Patriot League scoring champ while at West Point. Chris, welcome into the show. It's great to be with you. Uh, reliving the past, uh, some scoring numbers there. I like it. It's it's good to be with you guys. Yeah. Hey, b- before we get started, just just I mean, we we may touch on this later, but uh, just to let the folks know. Uh, so you were West Point grad. Grad. Uh, yeah. Barely. Graduate. Barely. Well, hey, hey, you 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 did it. You walk along. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm one of those guys who 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 got in, who did the the beast barracks, did the first semester, and then I had a different calling and, and went a different way. So my hats off. Literally to you, <laughs> for, for, for you and all of all the brothers and sisters who have who have done that. Uh, I, that is a special place. Uh, always have special special memories, even though it's a short time. Very impactful on my life. So I want to thank you for all that you have done, and continue to do. I appreciate you saying that. I knew a lot of guys who went your route, and I was envious of most of those guys. So yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that. Hey, so 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 college hoops. Do we, where do we, where do we start? Do we start with with the crazy game on Saturday? Or do we start with the crazy game on Monday? <laughs> Man, you know, it's a, it's a great question because I think we thought we were going to get a, a far different result. Maybe not necessarily, uh, not necessarily Baylor not winning the national championship, but I think we thought we were going to get a better game based on how it's set up all season long. I mean, this is what we were, we were waiting for, that collision course. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the other game you talked about, the Final Four game, you know, here's, here's UCLA taking that team to the brink. Um, and then the other, you know, you could put them two together and, and then does that game, UCLA Gonzaga, that shot, how much, how long will that live? Uh, because Gonzaga ended up not consummating the deal. So there's a lot of tie-ins through the whole thing. It was a great final four overall. You know, Chris, the thing I keep thinking about this game that we saw, and let's start with Monday's game because I think it's the most relevant and most timely one. But I, I had watched Baylor a lot this year and I think we all felt like, Leading up to conference season, we had a good idea who Baylor was, who Gonzaga was. But before we talk about Monday's game, how much do you think it would have helped Gonzaga had that December game against Baylor, the one that was canceled due to COVID protocols and COVID reasons, helped them going into last night's game? It's a great question. Um, You know, I did four Baylor games this year. One of them was a 50-point blowout of Kansas State. Um, Three of them were before their COVID pause. One of them was after the COVID pause. And every time you watched Baylor on tape, you could see their athleticism. You could see their physicality. But you didn't have a full appreciation of it until you were actually there in the arena. And then I think the appreciation of that goes in even to a higher degree when you're actually playing against them. Gonzaga can't simulate that. They could not simulate what they were going to face last night. A superior athletic team, a superior strength team, a team that played harder than them. So to your question, playing them earlier in the year, Baylor may have beaten them, but I think Gonzaga would have been more prepared for the physical specimen that Baylor was, would have been more prepared last night. And I think that's what knocked them back to start that game. And once you get knocked back by a team that's as good as Baylor, there's no shot to recover. So I think that's where a game earlier in the year would have given at least Gonzaga a chance to see them in person and feel them, which I think would have helped last night. I think the other thing that definitely would have happened is that the, the, the shine would not have been on Gonzaga the way it was 
you know, und undefeated and we're, you know, we're, we're marching toward a history. Well, no, no, you're not. <laughs> you're marching toward history of a different sort. Um, so to, to take, to take another, so what do you think, okay, so there, you know, last night, is there anything that they could have done or the, it was kind of one of those, it, it was over from, you know, from kind of from the moment it started, they were just, they were in a track meet that they had no business running in. Yeah, it was tough because here's the thing, guys, the, the difference in Baylor in the final four is their offense went to another level. They were good defensively throughout. I think what we were waiting for was the offensive team we had seen all season long. I mean, Baylor was one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. They, were shoot, they shot almost 40% from three, over 40%. They made 10 to 11 threes a game. They were not doing that in the NCAA tournament until the final four. They made 21 threes in the two games in the final four. And specifically, Jared Butler had not been the player that we had seen all year offensively. He made eight threes in the two final four games. So, and I think, I think Baylor was a lot closer to Gonzaga offensively than we wanted to believe all season long. Like we, we thought Gonzaga was this offensive juggernaut and Baylor was this kind of freewheeling offensive team. That was not the case. And, and I think what we saw last night was a culmination of, wow, this, this defensive team that we haven't really seen in a while, but now all of a sudden they're banging threes down. Like think about how decimating that can be to a psyche of a team. And so, I mean, Mark Few tried to go zone. It worked for a few possessions. In fact, I thought it helped uh, contract the lead to 10 at the half. But Baylor's too good. I mean, they, you know, they ultimately figured that out. And, and I don't think there was anything that could be done because that, that defense was there. The athleticism, the superiority there uh, was, was ever present. And then the offense and the onslaught that that was, it, it was just overwhelming. I was going to say, Chris, the thing that, that amazed me is you, you could tell about 10 minutes into this basketball game that for, for whatever reason, it really looked like the first time that Gonzaga couldn't hang with someone that they were on the court with, right? Like, like they had played... I want to say maybe one or two close games that, that were close at the half before they'd eventually blown out their opponents or whatever. But it was apparent from about 10 minutes on in this basketball game that I, I don't want to say that Baylor was playing more hungry, but they looked more determined, if that made sense. Like they were chasing someone who had been built up that they were their equal. And it really, you, you spoke about Jared Butler, and I think he's a fantastic story, a kid that Scott Drew recruited, I think, when he was 13 years old or started knowing when he was 13 years old. What was most impressive to you about the role that Jared Butler played last night? You know, he, there's this calming effect on a team when guys a, don't care about their own stuff. And B, they're happy when somebody else on their team gets that stuff. And that was one of the things that I think separated that team. And I'll, I'll, I'll take you back to last year. I, I called a game early in the season, a Baylor game. And Davion Mitchell, one of the notes, I was looking at this yesterday, one of the notes I made is that Davion Mitchell is hurting his team because he's trying too much to be like Jared Butler and Macy Oteague. If, if Davion Mitchell, this was last year, he had, he had transferred in from Auburn. If Davion Mitchell just focused on being a defensive stopper and stopped taking wild shots, he would be a better player and Baylor would be better. And, and I think, you know, having that relationship and the leadership of Jared Butler and his effect on a Davion Mitchell, for example, it, it, was, it had a calming effect. When your best player is that way, it ends up having a calming effect. And I think, you know, you made the point about the way that they played and the contrast between Baylor 
in Gonzaga. Baylor, as good as they were, Baylor played every game this year like they were poor. And I thought Gonzaga played la- that game la- last night like they, they had money. And, and when you're – I mean, you guys know in any sport, like if you're playing somebody who's scrapping for a meal, who's playing like they're poor, that's tough to beat, especially when they're good. And, and that's, that is what stood out to me really all season is that this team that came into the year we knew was going to be good. Jared Butler was the preseason player of the year. And yet they played poor all season long. And I think it elevated everybody on that roster. Talk a little bit about Scott Drew. I, I'm, I'm going to kind of set you up here a little bit. So um, I'm the sports editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And I have a columnist by the name of Matt Engel who wrote, uh, who got in touch with the former athletic director uh, at Baylor, who, who was basically the guy who hired uh, Scott back in 2003, which is, you know, eons ago in, in college basketball coaching, coaching terms. Uh, you know, and, and, and the comm talked about how Scott Drew was, you know, saying we're, go- we're going to get to a Final Four. And this was a program that had, you know, was on the verge of being blown up, all of the infractions and all of the stuff and all the, the, the bad history. And now you got a guy who, who was allowed, given the freedom, to, to, to lose several seasons, something that kind of probably wouldn't happen now. And then, you know, you see the, 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 the rewards, you know, the fruits of the labor. And I, I don't know, if, if you could talk a little bit about kind of just Drew's approach, but also the relationship that, with him, the school and all that. Yeah, you know, the, the story about him taking over that program has been told a lot. I, I think the stories that have not been told enough are the iterations along the way. I mean, he's been mm-hmm. there 18 years, and it hasn't – even in the years where they kind of got it going, there had to be a reinvention. Like, we played him when I was still at Duke. We played him in 2010, the year we won the national championship. We played him in the Elite Eight. And it was a heck of a Baylor team. I mean, they had Epe Udo, Darius Dunn, Tweedy Carter, Quincy AC. I mean, they, they were loaded. And at the time, they played this zone. You know, Scott Drew forever played this zone because they had these really long athletes. You know, Scott Drew for a long time had this reputation that he was cheating at Baylor. I mean, there were a lot of folks who thought he was getting – how is he getting players down to Baylor? People thought he was doing it in illicit ways. Um, you know, he, he, is, he is this serial optimist, and he's got this joy for life that, that, that comes outward. And, and sometimes I think early in his career it came off as phony. And until you get to know him, and once you do get to know him, you realize, man, this guy is legit. Like, he is just a really – really optimistic dude. And, and then you go back, you know, 2015, they lost in the first round of the tournament to Georgia State. 2016, they lose in the first round of the tournament to Yale. I mean, that's only five years ago. And people are like, man, this guy can't coach. He's never going to get it done. And here he is a few years later, and you go, back, you go back two years ago, they lose Tristan Clark, who was playing as good as anybody was in the country. They lose him for the year. They're still playing a zone. Scott Drew looks at his team says, I don't have the length to play that zone anymore. We've got all these little guards. We've got Mark Vidal, who's undersized, but he's a, he's a tough guy. Let's go man-to-man. And that change, I think, is why they cut the, the nets down last night, was that, that change to the man-to-man defense. My point being, yeah, he took over a program that, that had an unbelievable situation. And, and he saw something in them before they saw something in him, obviously. But – it's the iterations along the way and the reinventions that I think make a great coach. And that's, I think that's what sets, sets him apart. And in a, in a profession, coaching is a cynical profession. Sports is a cynical business right now. To have a guy who is a serial optimist reach the mountaintop, 
I think it's not just good for Baylor and, and for that program. It's great for sports, and it's certainly great for college basketball. You know, Chris, that's, that's a really good point because I've watched a lot of Scott Drew's career because I've followed Big 12 basketball for a really long time. And it, it's not just the, the iterations to his coaching style. It's the iterations to the players that he brings in, too. You know, yeah. there was a long time where I, I think Scott Drew spent a lot of time chasing either McDonald's All-Americans or top 15 to 20 ranked guys. And it really felt like the last two years, because that Baylor team last year, I think, could have been in this exact same spot that they were this year with how good they were. But finding guys that fit his system and that fit his mantra, how hard is it for a coach to evolve? I, I mean, you mentioned that the stylistic things are one thing, but to find players and identify guys that fit your personality and your team, how hard is that for a coach? It's really hard, and, and I think the guys who are doing it the best are the guys who are going to see success moving forward because the transfer portal is not going anywhere. I mean, the numbers of guys – it's not – that's not changing. We can, we can complain about it all we want. It ain't changing. So it's the new one and done. The transfer market is the new one and done. That's how you're going to win in college basketball, and I think the way that Scott Drew has done it – I mean, you look at four guys last night. Jonathan was transferred from UNLV. Macy Oteague from UNC Asheville, Adam Flagler from Presbyterian, Davion Mitchell from Auburn. None of those guys were sure things in the transfer market. But what Scott Drew has done, it's a very faith-based program. I'm not a super religious guy, but their faith, it binds them. It's a good thing for that program. So he gets guys who believe in that. He gets guys who are committed, who are going to work hard. So he gets the right fit. He identifies that. He's very good at doing that. And then they coach him up. Again, like the metamorphosis from Davion Mitchell last year to where he is now, like that's player development. At Jonathan Chamochacha was a good player at UNLV, but he's gotten significantly better. So, I, you know, the way that he has gone and identified and then coached those guys up and then put them in a system that works, I, I think is the wave of the future. And he has identified that and shown great success with it, you know, obviously here and, and over the last few years. So, Chris, I mean, we, we could talk about Baylor probably, probably for the whole show, but I, I do want to touch on that, on that shot, that, that, that Saturday night special, uh, if you will, uh, where, where Jalen Suggs just, I mean, rips from, I mean, what, half court and, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, and then sends, obviously, sends Gonzaga on. I mean, so two things. One, it, it feels like that was the best game of the tournament. Um, and, then, and then secondly, I would want to know, in your experience, have you ever been on the floor for – a similar type of shot or ever made a shot like that. And, you know, just kind of walk us through that. Yeah, I, I was as a coach, uh, I go back to that 2010 national championship game. It did not go in, but the, I think the moment was similar. Mm -hmm. It was in the same building. Mm -hmm. We won that chip in, in Indianapolis, Gordon Hayward banks a shot that, that barely misses. And it was a little bit farther than, uh, than, than Jalen Suggs, but it wasn't much farther. Yeah. So that was, you know, you kind of saw the, the yin and the yang, the, the thin line between winning and losing. Um, one was a Final Four game, the other a national championship game. Uh, so it was, I mean, look, if they end up winning the title, Gonzaga, that shot in that game I think goes down as, as the greatest of all time. Um, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons why. One being the offense that was played in that game, I think separates it from the Christian Leitner shot and some of these okay. other games that we've seen. But I think the question becomes, if you don't win the title, like, does that shot in that game get lost in history? I don't know. We'll see. But um, it, was a, it was an amazing – it was an 
it wasn't even just about that shot. I mean, that stretch, you know, the, the charge to get it to overtime, the block by yeah. Suggs, yeah. the full court, like the number of plays, both UCLA and Gonzaga to get to that shot. And then for that shot to go in, forget about it, man. That was an epic, epic night. Chris, that's a, that's a really good point. Cause I, I love watching Jalen Suggs, the way that he yeah. plays the tenacity, you know, he's just so smooth out there. What did this tournament do for him from an NBA draft prospects, um, I, I guess, perspective? I think in the case of Suggs, we're talking about inches. And what I mean by that is, like, I have said on broadcasts, I mean, I'm, I'm on the record saying I would take Jalen Suggs over Cade Cunningham. I've said that all year. Now, I, I, I've been in the minority in that opinion. I think there are some coming more to that conclusion, I guess, is, is the effect. He's been a top three pick, I think, all season long. Uh, he, Evan Mobley, and Cade Cunningham. But I think what you saw were some intangibles. Not that Cade doesn't have these. Cade's had, had a lot of big-time moments late in games. But I think what you saw from Jalen Suggs, two of my favorite players this year, guys, were, were both quarterbacks in high school. They both played football. One, Jalen Suggs. The other, Miles McBride at West Virginia. There is a toughness to those guys. There, there is. It's why specializing in one sport, I tell young people all the time, is it's a bad enterprise. Play as much as you can because I think other sports make you better at maybe the one you want to be the best at. And so that's where Suggs, for me, it, it's a separator. And it was confirmed, Aaron, in this Final Four especially. where I mean, just the heart, the toughness, the big moments were never too big for that freshman that's what separated Jalen Suggs for me. And so while he was considered, I think, a, a top pick all year, I think he moved inches for some people in this Final Four. So uh, weird, sticking with Gonzaga for a second, where does Mark Few go? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, just epic winning percentage. The, the guy, you know, he always gets you right there. And then, you know, I mean, it, so, you know, I mean, it's just, just you know, because, you know, in the, in the NBA it was always, see what see what one and then try to try to emulate that so you know obviously you know more athletic to go uh you know bigger faster stronger i mean or just you know hey our program got us this far our program got us you know 40 minutes from a chip from a chip so we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing mark few goes fly fishing is what mark few does in all seriousness because let me let me just say this they were undefeated going into the national championship game. We're talking about an undefeated season, the first one since 76. They were on the precipice. They were on the doorstep of that. Mark Few has, in 22 years, Mark Few has, you know, it's almost like, you know, doing one of those, you know, mathematical equations. Like he's done the John Nash. He's given it the John Nash treatment to answer the very question you're asking. Like, what can I do to prepare my team more? And outside of moving out of the WCC, which it doesn't look like that's going to happen, uh, outside, I mean, he schedules unbelievably in the non-conference, even just this year. I mean, they played West Virginia. They played Kansas. They played Iowa. So, you know, look, how do you prepare? And they wanted to play Baylor, which would have prepared them for the game last night. So I, I think we have to be careful, uh, you know, driving sweet, sweeping referendums on Gonzaga and Mark Few. I mean, they have mm -hmm. played in – you know, the last game, they have been one of the last two teams standing both this year and then you go back to when they played North Carolina a few years ago in the national yeah. championship. What more can you ask? Winning the game? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah. my God, he's averaging yeah. – thir 
He is now averaging 30 wins a season. Yeah. yeah. Come on, man. Go fly fish and enjoy yourself. <laughs> but, but Chris, here's the amazing thing about it. His recruiting is changing, right? Like yeah. he gets his first five-star recruit this year in Jalen Suggs. He's got potentially two on the way for next year. How does that change the dynamics of his system? Because this is a guy who's always gotten players into his system, right? He's taught them the Gonzaga way, the way they cut, the way they play. It's elegant. It's beautiful to watch. Now he's starting to mix in some of these talented freshmen. And, you know, coaches like Bill Self, John Calipari, um, Roy Williams, they've all had uh, – Coach K, they've all had success with the one-and-dones, but they've all struggled with them too. How does that dynamic change Gonzaga moving forward with the way that he's recruiting now? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question because here's the other element to what we were just saying about Mark Few. It's one thing to reach the mountaintop when you're the coach at Gonzaga. It's the other thing, staying there. Sustained success is harder necessarily than getting to the mountaintop. And he's done that. I mean, like you said, he, they're going to be a top five team again next year, Gonzaga. And, and the reason that is is because of what you're saying. You know, they started they, – they've been very active in the, in the international market. They're right there on the West Coast. They have very good ties internationally. They have really mined the transfer market, you know, just this year. Uh, Andrew Nemhart, getting him from Florida. That was a huge addition to that roster. You go back to the last national championship game they played in, Ni Nigel Williams-Goss was a transfer that, that came to that program. So he's mined that. That's the wave of the future. And I think, you know, so if, if they continue to do what they've done in terms of internationally mining the transfer market, Gonzaga has now become a destination for a lot of transfers. And then, oh, by the way, now you can go into living rooms and say, Jalen Suggs, look what he just did. He's now, you know, an icon and he's going to be a top three pick. And you don't have to take five of those guys. You're not going to win with five of those guys. But if you get one or two of those guys, which they are doing and will continue to do, that's how you sustain the success. And so he's got it. Again, he has run the equations over 22 years over and over and over again of how do I keep this thing going? And I think he's got it now. He's got it rolling pretty good. Uh, last question on Gonzaga. Do you feel like they got, they, they just ran out of gas at that UCLA game? Um, you know, I'm sure they didn't, we're not expecting it to be, you know, a dogfight to the degree that it was and that it's just, expended so much energy with that that they had nothing left in the tank for, you know, for Baylor on Monday. I, I reject that. I, I reject that hypothesis and not that it's yours. I, I, you know, I started to get a little bit annoyed last night and I love Grant Hill like a brother. So I, I, I and I will tell him this when I see him next. I, you know, he got, he went early to the narrative that they were flat and they were tired from that game against UCLA. What happened last night was a superior athletic team, a superior physical team, a harder playing team, a team that was banging down shots that were open for the most part, a team that got after the offensive glass. That team, you know, I'm a, I'm a Charles Darwin fan. And when Charles Darwin was gallivanting across the Galapagos Islands, he came to one massive conclusion, big turtle eat little turtle. Last night, that was a Darwin game, you know, and you guys know what I'm talking about. You'll see them. I mean, any sport, there are certain games that are Darwin games. That's what that was last night. That was a far superior evolution, a product of evolution that just dominated a team that could not hang with them athletically or physically. And, and so that's what, that's what was, last night was about. It wasn't about Gonzaga being exhausted or tired. I, I just, I reject that hypothesis.
Oh, man, that, that, I, lo- I love big turtle, little turtle, eating little turtle. But uh, so, so, so UCLA, let's give them a little bit of props. And let, 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 hey, let's talk about the Pac-12 for a little bit. I mean, yeah, let's do it. I mean, so, UCLA had to, had to have a play-in game. And, you know, we, and they're not the first to do it, you know, but VCU's, you know, other, other team, you know, at least one other team has done it. But, uh, I mean, I always wonder, like, because does the committee sit back and say, wow, what did, we, did we mess that up? You know, like, where does, where, you know, Pac-12 going to get more respect going in next year? Like, how, what, is, what, is, what, is, what is all this? Uh, what is it really? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, look, the Pac-12 has earned its reputation. I mean, I, now they had a, now they've, they have changed that. And one of the ways you change your, your league's reputation was by winning games in March. Like, that's why I hope we pumped the brakes on the Big Ten last year. Like, I am well on the record. In, in a lot of games I had saying, look, folks, just take it easy with the Big Ten, all right? Let's just take it a little bit easy here. And obviously that bared out. You know, it's in the inverse with the Pac-12. They earned what they're getting right now. But I think part of the seating and part of the way the committee looked at them was a product of the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, that league was decimated by the pandemic. The, the West Coast was decimated by the pandemic. So the schedule, the non-conference schedule, wasn't what it could have been or should have been. I would also add this about UCLA specifically. I saw UCLA a lot during the season. They looked nothing like they were in this tournament, especially defensively. Like they were a good offensive team. They lost their best player in Chris Smith during the year. So they had to kind of reinvent around that, but they were a good offensive team during the year. They became Cincinnati in the (laughs) tournament. Like they became Mick Cronin Cincinnati teams in the tournament. There was a toughness. There was a, a physicality there was they you felt UCLA like that that was my thing with Gonzaga all year like you got to make them feel you UCLA made Gonzaga feel them and they made every team in this tournament feel them Oregon State the same thing like you felt Oregon State so I I think the league did itself a, a favor here certainly and I think the league does not benefit from playing late games and all of that but I also am not backing off the idea that we have not been solely wrong about the Pac-12. They have earned their reputation, uh, rightfully so. This coaching carousel specifically in the Big 12 has been really interesting to follow because now you have Chris Beard at Texas, who I think is going to win massively there. Uh, you also have Porter Moser, who takes over that Oklahoma job. What are your thoughts on some of the movement that we've seen within the Big 12 and the coaching hires that they've made? Because it really feels like while this conference has had a lot of turnover, they've made really good hires in key uh, schools. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, they, um, and when Lon Kruger was in the league, 60% of the coaches had been to a final four and there's only 10 teams in the league. So it, well now, and with Porter Moser, that number is going to stay the same to me, you know, we could parse out in any given year, what is the best league, but there is by any analytical measure, by any analytical measure, the best league in the country for the last eight years has been the Big 12. And, and a big part of it is that that league has invested in being good at basketball. It's built new facilities. I mean, Texas Tech has a new practice center. They've invested in hiring the right people. They've gone about doing that the right way. That league has invested in being good at basketball, and, and you're seeing the product. The other thing that that league has done is that league has – you know, again, it has utilized the transfer market. Like if I was an AD hiring a coach, the first thing I would say after come on in and please sit down is what are you going to do with the transfer portal? And that's where Chris Beard has cornered the market on that. Scott Drew has done that. You go down the line, 
a lot of these coaches in the league, they, they looked at Kansas, said, okay, Kansas has won the league 20 years running. Well, what do we have to do? We're not going to be able to recruit with them per se. So what do we do? And so I think coaches have also been able to figure out how you can recruit to compete. So th that league, I mean, again, by any analytical measure over the last seven to eight years has been the best league in college basketball. Yeah, and it's a good point because even Kansas has started to utilize the transfer portal a little mm -hmm. bit. You know, they brought in the Lawson uh, brothers the, the other year. They're doing it again this year to try and revamp their roster. Last week, I thought Kansas had a very strategic move, you know, right? Day before the Final Four, they announced that Bill Stahl gets a lifetime contract. One, I, I think this kind of puts to bed the narrative that he was going to leave for the NBA. Two, it was a chance to, you know, have the Kansas name in the final four. But, but three, I'm interested to get your take on a, a university who at the time that they made this decision did not have an athletic director who at the time has impending NCAA sanctions about ready to come against them. What were your thoughts on the University of Kansas kind of digging into the trenches and saying Bill Self's our guy and, and we're going to move forward with them? I think it was an unseemly move is, is what I think about that. Um, we, we are living in a world in college athletics right now, and I'm speaking generally, but specifically, let's, let's just stay specific to some of these schools involved with the FBI investigation. We are living in a world now where member institutions, let's not forget, these, these colleges are, are member institutions of the NCAA. They are now saying to the NCAA, we know you have your rules. We don't like your rules, so we're not going to follow your rules. Come and get us. Do your worst. And oh, by the way, we're going to double down and we're now going to give a lifetime contract to a guy who, you know, look, he says he didn't know about anything. He wasn't involved, but they've got an assistant coach who has yet to be punished. They've got an assistant coach implicated in these things that are going on. The, these, the, the program was implicated uh, on tape in, in, these, in these trials, and yet Kansas, much like LSU and much like Arizona, have said, you've got your rules, we're not going to follow them. And my problem is that if you don't like the rules, that's fine. If you think players should be paid, that's fine. But if you don't like the rules, then change the rules. But as long as we have rules, rules have to be followed, and there have to be consequences for rule breakers. And until we arrive at that place, then we have inequity. Because there are coaches who are trying to follow the rules and do the right thing. And here we have a guy and Bill Self, who again, his program was implicated, who now has a lifetime contract. What message does that send? So that's the problem. Again, I'm not necessarily sticking up for the rules. I think a lot of them are antiquated and I think we can do things differently, but I'm a rule follower. And as long as you tell me there's a rule, then I'm gonna do that. And so I, look, it's nothing personal to Bill Self, uh, I've covered his team a lot. I like Bill Self, and I, I, I enjoy being around him. And I think he would be the first to admit, a system like this, it can't continue to function. And that's the problem I have. You know, Chris, that's a really good point, because I was thinking about Roy Williams's um, retirement ceremony, right? And he had a really interesting nugget. It was only about a 30 to 45 second soundbite where he's talking about his time at Kansas and specifically he's talking about the group of Kirk Heinrich, Nick Collison. Um, and, and I want to say Drew Gooden was a part of those three players that he talked about where he was worried about, you know, the state of college basketball and the way that recruiting was going and how he was having to get players. And he said, those three players saved him. And, you know, so but my, my thought process on that is college basketball is in this real interesting world, right? Where you're having to, 
constantly re-recruit your own roster. You're having to recruit at a high level, and there's a lot of pressures to that. Do you think some of those instances maybe led to Roy deciding that now was the time to step away from UNC? There's no question about it. And I, I thought it was, the, it was the undertone of that press conference you're talking about, Aaron. I thought it was laced throughout that press conference. Um, you know, the, he's already had some guys enter the transfer portal uh, even before he retired. Uh, he's looking at name, image, likeness, and, and what that legislation, how that will impact. We're looking at a rule that's going to be passed where transfers are eligible right away, can play right away. We're, we're looking at a transfer portal right now where a quarter of the players in Division I men's basketball are in the portal right now. 75, might be 76 teams have five or more guys who have left their programs. The average right now, 357 teams in the sport, the average number of transfers per roster is three. So there is no question, and I thought it was laced throughout his press conference, this, this notion that I can't get through to these guys. And I can't tell you how many coaches I talked to over the course of the year that lament the inability to get through to their players. Because sometimes getting through to a player, you got to tell them the truth. You got to be hard on them. You got to be demanding. And, and so, look, you, you have to evolve with the times. But the point is, I think there are a lot of coaches who are, who are trying to figure out how to get through and establish a relationship and how to function in this new evolving world. So we're seeing guys like Roy Williams. John Swafford, I think one of the reasons that he stepped down uh, as the commissioner of the ACC is, is he saw the future of college athletics and said, you know what, I'm okay. So I think you're, I think you're spot on, Aaron. I, I think that was laced throughout Roy Williams' press conference, and he has certainly earned the right to say, you know what, I've done enough. I don't want to forge a new path in this new world. Chris, I feel like we could go another 40 minutes, but let's play two, right? To, to use a baseball term. But um, no, I definitely want to thank you for, for your time, for your insights. Um, want to thank you again for all that you do for, for us and the nation. Um, so everybody, Chris Patola, ESPN analyst and uh, serious ACC radio host. Thank you, sir. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thank you. That was dope. <laughs> Russell, thanks to Chris Patola for joining us. And Otto, I'll, I'll tell you what, man. ESPN needs to give that guy more national games. The people need to hear from him because that was fantastic. Yeah, no, he's, he's, got, he's got great, great mind, great, you know, great insights. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm using Big Turtle Eats Little Turtle. I'm just, I'm just saying. You're just taking that? I'm just, Chris you know, to get that copyrighted. Just, <laughs> seriously, put on a T-shirt with, with turtles. But uh, I, I, so I got to ask. I mean, Chris kind of kind of took Kansas to the, to the woodshed a little bit. Like, what, what's, uh, hey, hey, how are you feeling? Yeah, so, so this, this narrative has been built up among the national media, and, and Pat Forty is one of them. You know, I, I always like to give Pat Forty a hard time because he's a Missouri grad, and he just seems to hate Kansas. But <laughs> I get the notion of people being upset with a university that's bucking a trend, right? And Chris spoke really well about this. You have Arizona, you have LSU, you have Kansas, these schools who – have been mentioned in this NCAA infractions case and this FBI case. But at the same time, you have a governing body who is overseeing this, who is using facts that weren't confirmed in court, right? It, it would be one thing if a lot of these allegations were confirmed in court, but, but they're not. So the NCAA is basically just saying, hey, we know what you're doing. 
It's not right. It's against our rules. We're not okay with it. We're going to come down on you. And so for, for a university to kind of dig in against the NCAA it is interesting and it's a really compelling narrative. But, but at the same time, I asked the question, if you're not going to be with your coach on this, with their staff on this, then what are you doing, right? Because like, so Bill Self has been at the University of Kansas for 18 years. He is the perfect personality. He is the perfect person to steward that team. And so with a school backing them and supporting them, and everyone's going to say that uh, what, they is, is, what they have done is wrong, right? Like it's against the rules. It's not okay. I would argue that the things that came out in trial, the things that they have them on tape, are arguably no different than what any other Division I college basketball university or team would do in an effort to win. And to single out universities that are only Adidas, that still doesn't jive right with me. And I get the narrative and I get pushing it, but it's, a, it's an incomplete picture and it's an incomplete response to what other schools that are not Adidas-branded universities are doing as well. So if, if we're going to just argue about what's going on at Kansas, Arizona, at LSU, then let's talk about what's going on with the rest of college basketball and figure out an actual way to fix it, not just single out the ones who were reported in this report. That's my take on it. So I love that they gave Bill Self a lifetime contract because if you're not riding and dying with him, what's it going to say to your next head coach anyway? Mm. Right? Mm. And yeah. also, like, if, if they fire Bill Self, who else are they going to get right now? Chris Beard's gone. Chris Beard's at Texas. He would have right. been the logical answer. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, you saw powerhouse programs struggle to fill roles this year because there aren't a lot of high coaching candidates that are ready to fill those roles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, speaking about powerhouse programs, um, I love the fact that UNC has got Herbert Davis coaching them. I mean, I, you know, uh, Rod Williams, uh, incredible of uh, coaching and a great career, but I, I, I'm, I really love the fact that the first black coach at UNC, I think that, uh, you know, in 2021, I mean, I think, you know, milestones are still being reached, will continue to be reached. I, I think that's just a great move for the program. I think it's a great move for the sport. Um, looking forward to see what he does and, and hopefully can restore the luster, um, you know, get, get, him, get him back. I mean, I've, I've never been a, a big UNC guy. I mean, Jordan guy, sure, but I've never been a big UNC guy, Tar Heel guy. But, but look, I, I, I wish him the best and hope the best for the program. Do you think he keeps the JV team? Uh, it, it's, it's the only school in the ACC conference and I think one of the only college basketball schools right now that still have a JV team because that was a Roy Williams thing. I uh, that, that that I I do not know. I <laughs> I, have, I have no I have no opinions on that on the, on the, at this point. But but hey, if it's a Roy Williams tradition, I I think that you're kind of uh, obliged to keep it at least at least for a season or two. No. <laughs> oh, I, I, absolutely, and I, and I think Hubert Davis was the one coaching the JV team, so like he's going to give his assistant that. But no, I I I think it was a great hire. I was happy the Tar Heels decided to keep it in the family. I'm pushing back on this notion that it's college basketball's best job. I don't think oh, I, it is. I, 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 yeah. I, no, that like some people have said that it's by far and away college basketball's best job. I, 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 I don't. So. I don't. It, it's uh, Kentucky, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 look, I, I don't. Look, you, you could definitely make a case it's in the top three or top five, but, but, but best job. Mm, mm. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's that blue blood tier, right? Yeah. And then oh, it's, definitely. Then it's definitely. everybody else. <sighs> All right, man. You ready to wrap this one up? Wrap it. Land the plane. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Time to wrap things up this week, and a special thanks to our guest Chris Patola, ESPN College Basketball Analyst and Sirius XM ACC Radio host. We hope you guys enjoyed it. We enjoyed bringing it to you, and we appreciate Chris for giving his thoughts on Monday's Baylor and Gonzaga game and the state of college basketball in general. Also, special thanks to our A-plus producer. His name is Daniel Kramer, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley, and also you know, the guy who oversees this entire chain of podcasts on our network, the one and only he is our chief content officer, Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media. Hey, here's what's coming up on the rest of the shows this week. If you did not catch the Mike Weiss show, which dropped on Monday, Bruce comes off the bench to host and brings on NBA reporter Ashley Neville. They discuss her years covering the league as well as some of the great guests she's been able to bring on her own podcast, Get On My Neville. That show airs on YouTube, so check it out. Also, Tuesdays, it's Full Court with Fisher and Kay. They drop every Tuesday. Monica McNutt and King McClure have a lot to talk about this week, Otto, as they relive Baylor's championship on buckets, boards, and blocks. And, of course, we wrap things up with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman as they have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And Otto and I are back every Wednesday. And, Otto, we are getting back to NBA talk next week. But, hey, we had to get the college team some love. Oh, definitely had to give, give them some love. Hey, everybody, you know what time it is. Uh, last week, I got a COVID shot. Went right in the arm. Didn't feel it. My arm is still attached to my body. I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm you know, so basically what we're saying here is go, if, you, if you're down to get a COVID shot, get the COVID shot. If you're not down to get the COVID shot, get on the list. I mean, it may take a while depending on where you live, but it's really, really important that you get vaccinated. Any one of the vaccinations will work. Until then, continue to social distance, wash your hands, um, wear a mask, all that good stuff keeps everybody safe. Don't forget for all that all those people who are tr- doing their jobs to keep us safe, you know, first responders, grocery store clerks, so on and so forth. So threw a lot at you, but bottom line is do what you can to stay safe. We're almost at the end of this nightmare. For Amber Lynn, I'm Otto Strong. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.